Before we get started, I want to remind parents that due to the nature and the language used in this particular episode that I do not recommend children under the age of 17 years old to listen to this particular episode. So if you have children in the car or in the house or in your near presence, I highly recommend that they do not listen to this episode. Real estate is a tough business to go into. It's not your typical nine to five job. In fact, real estate agents find themselves working odd hours, weekends, and sometimes holidays. These folks don't get a paycheck every two weeks. They must sell homes and wait for commission check to come in. It's tough work and takes a lot of hustle, determination, and motivation to survive in this field. 24-year-old Lindsay Buziak of Sanic, British Columbia had these qualities. Lindsay, who's described as popular and caring, had her whole life ahead of her. She was born on November the 2nd, 1983 to parents Evelyn Wrightmeyer and Jeff Buziak. Lindsay was close with her family, especially her father, Jeff. Jeff was supportive of Lindsay and her desire to follow in his footsteps as a real estate agent. He supported all means of her career and gave her advice along the way to help lead Lindsay to ultimate success. But on January the 31st, 2008, Lindsay received a phone call, a promising lead that could result in a multi-million dollar sale for her. A sale that Lindsay thought would take just two days to close, just two days, resulted in the gruesome murder of this young, prospering real estate agent. Despite the public's outcry for closure, Sanic police have struggled to find Lindsay's killer, or killers. Some residents of Sanic question if the police are doing enough to solve the murder while others say people are afraid to come forward because the killers remain in the area and have threatened the people who know about this. This story is complex and downright evil. You must pay attention to all the small details as they are key to solving this thing. Relax and take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Shed the Light. The District of Sanic is a district municipality on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. This is within the greater Victoria area. With a population of about 120,000 people, Sanic is the most popular municipality in the Capital Region District and Vancouver Island. Sanic adopted its name after the first Sanic Nation, which stands for Emerging Land or Emerging People. Emerging is a great way to put it when it comes to 24-year-old Lindsay Buziak. Lindsay was starting to make a name for herself. Born and raised in the district of Sanic, Lindsay was known to be that popular person that everyone wanted to become friends with. Around mid-2006, early 2007, Lindsay enrolled in a real estate course where she met a man named Ryan Zalo. Ryan showed some interest in Lindsay, and over a course of time, it's known that the two became friends, even though Ryan was romantically interested. Ryan would eventually introduce Lindsay to his mother, Shirley Zalo. Shirley was a manager at a REMAX real estate office in Sanic. This was apparently a very popular office there. Shirley took a liking to Lindsay and would eventually offer her a job at this location. Now, throughout the beginning stages of Lindsay's employment, it became apparent that she did not have the same feelings for Ryan Zalo as he did for her. These two continued to maintain their friendship. Not shortly after Lindsay's employment at this office, she met Shirley Zalo's son, Jason Zalo. Jason, a mortgage broker and a licensed real estate agent, would begin to show his face a little bit more due to his interest in Lindsay. 
Jason and Lindsay ended up going on a few dates together, which eventually blossomed into a relationship between the two. A few months into their relationship, Jason and Lindsay decided to move in together. And Jason's mother, Shirley, bought them a beautiful $1.3 million waterfront property in Shawnigan Lake. This is located just outside Victoria. It is also known that Shirley spent an additional $250,000 in renovations on this property. But there was a turn. Soon after living with Jason, Lindsay quickly began to see the true colors of him and his mother, Shirley. Shirley Zalo became to be more controlling, moody, and had tons of anger issues, while Jason turned into this jealous boyfriend who also became controlling and looked at Lindsay as his property that no one else could have. Lindsay would eventually get tired of this, tired of dealing with these living conditions and being so far away from her friends who meant so much to her. So she decided to move out of this $1.3 million home to be closer to her friends in Victoria. But Jason somehow convinced Lindsay to stay with him, and the couple moved into a condo in Victoria in fall of 2007. This condo was owned by Jason's brother, Ryan Zalo, who reports say evicted his previous tenants so that these two can live in this apartment or this condo. It is also known that Shirley Zalo invested $70,000 into this condo for renovations as well as furniture. But the move didn't fix much. Lindsay was still unhappy in her relationship with, Zay with Jason. She wanted to focus on her career in real estate and the challenges that came along with this commission-based career. These are Jeff's words, her father, about his daughter at the time of her murder. Lindsay was in a very mature stage in her life at the time of her murder. She was establishing herself in her career and rapidly becoming more successful and popular in business as she was in her social life. She was serious about her career and wanted to establish herself as a serious professional in the real estate industry. In her private life, she wasn't in a place she was comfortable with at all. She enjoyed being in a relationship that suited her desired lifestyle and did not impede on her career. She enjoyed her girlfriends and going to the gym. She was exiting the relationship she was in, which was not good for her and not what she envisioned how she wanted a relationship or partner to be. Both her immediate boss, Shirley Zalo, and her boyfriend, Jason Zalo, son of Shirley, were in no way what she envisioned her life to be or how it's supposed to function. As hard as they tried to control, manipulate, and contain Lindsay, she wanted more to exit their program they set for her. It wasn't working at all. As a matter of fact, Lindsay's largest source of stress prior to being murdered was the Zalo family. Lindsay wanted her own place. No boyfriend and certainly not Jason Zalo. She wanted to focus on her work, go to the gym, and socialize with her girlfriends who found support and enjoyment in what she did. On January 31st, 2008, Lindsay received a phone call on her direct cell phone. This call came in from a woman who Lindsay thought was trying to fake a Spanish accent. The woman stated that she and her husband were looking for a three-bedroom, three-bathroom, move-in-ready home in Saanich. The woman also went on to say that they were traveling from Vancouver to Victoria via ferry that weekend, which led into the weekend of February the 2nd, 2008. The couple also stated that they needed to purchase the home within that three-day period and that their budget was $1 million. Lindsay immediately began to become suspicious about this call and the woman on the other end of the phone. So she asked the woman how she got her direct cell phone number. That woman stated that a client whom Lindsay sold a home to in the past referred her, 
Now this client's name has not been released by police. However, following the call with this strange woman, Lindsay called that client to verify this woman's claim. That client was unavailable and out of town that weekend until after the showing would take place. Lindsay still decided that she would search for a home for this couple, as well as speak to a few close people in her life about this concern. Now, Lindsay ended up discussing this with her boyfriend, Jason. She talked to her father and a few friends about this uh, concern of hers and this call that came in. Her boyfriend, Jason, assured Lindsay that she should go through with this process due to the high commission that she could possibly make. Lindsay's boss, Shirley Zalo, states that she told Lindsay's father after the murder, I told Lindsay, if you feel unsafe, we can have somebody go to the showing with you or show the home on your behalf. Jeff's not too sure if this is true, given his relationship with Shirley. But he also said that he told Lindsay, you need to have someone go to the showing with you. I've been in the business for 30 years. I know how this works. I want to make sure you're safe. Jeff kept pressing uh, Lindsay on this issue, ensuring that she had someone to go to this property with her. It was eventually determined that Jason Zalo would go with her. The home that Lindsay found for the couple was listed around $964,000. It was a five-bedroom, four-bathroom luxurious house located in a cul-de-sac at 1702 DeSalsa Place in Santa British Columbia. On February the 2nd, the day the client was supposed to be showing, uh, coming to see the house with Lindsay, she received a call from the woman, actually a call from the woman's husband, stating that the wife wasn't feeling well and that she would not be attending the viewing. Now, we can all assume that this brought some suspicions to Lindsay, but she probably felt a little bit better knowing that Jason would be at that showing with her. Now, following this call, Lindsay and Jason had a late lunch at a place called Sauce. They wrapped up this lunch about 4.20 p.m. Now, after this lunch, the two left separately. Jason had to make an errand to a uh, auto shop called SHC Auto Graphics, which was like an automotive performance shop where they sold tires. They did some kind of, you know, performance uh, maintenance to cars. Uh, he got there at about 4.29 p.m. Now, this auto shop is about 5.6 miles from 1702 to South Place where the showing was to take place. Um, while Jason was at this auto shop, Lindsay uh, went home to change and then she headed right over to 1702 DeSalsa. Now it's confirmed that Lindsay grabbed the keys out of the property's lockbox at 529 p.m. So, something strange to point out that happened around this time. Jason has a colleague and teammate who uh, plays on a travel hockey league with him by the name of Cohen. According to Cohen, Jason had asked him to go to dinner that night, which was odd. Cohen and Jason weren't really that close of friends and they never hung out outside of work or during hockey. So it was just very weird for him to have a request from Jason to hang out. Cohen states that Jason was very persuasive and insisted that he go to dinner with him even after uh, Cohen resisted and wanted to spend time with his wife and children. Now guys, what I find strange is Jason just had a, a, a late lunch with Lindsay. He had priorities to get to this property to ensure that his girlfriend was safe and okay. Now, I don't know about you listeners, but I'm not thinking about having dinner right after I just had a late lunch, especially when someone who I never, you know, with someone who I never hung out with. So that's odd. Also, if my girlfriend, who's dependent on me to be at a showing to ensure she's safe because there's two complete strangers that made her feel uncomfortable, you bet your ass I'm going to be there. In fact, I'll probably be there 10 minutes early. Now, despite this request from Jason, 
and him being weird, Cohen still left work, goes home to discuss this with his wife, and he called Jason, told him he'll go to the dinner. Cohen would then leave his home to drive to SHC Auto Graphics, where he waited by Jason's Range Rover for him. Now, it's on camera, uh, Jason greeting Cohen at his Range Rover in that parking lot. It showed Jason escorting Cohen into the passenger side of his Range Rover, shutting the door for Cohen, then looking up at the camera in the parking lot right before heading to the driver's side of his vehicle and driving away. So we have Jason escorting this guy into his Range Rover as if he's like a girlfriend on a date, looking up at a camera. Jason looks up at the camera and then goes and gets into his car and drives away. Now, if that's not fishy to the police, then this makes total sense to why this damn case isn't solved. Now, at about 5.30 p.m., Jason has driven off. He sends Lindsay uh, a text message and says he'll be there about 10, 15 minutes or so. Now, when you look at the maps, uh, SHC Autographics is about 15 minutes away from the location that um, Lindsay uh, is doing the showing. Lindsay replies, okay, I'll see you in a bit. The Mexicans are here. At 1702 DeSalsa, witnesses did see uh, Lindsay greeting people around 5.30 p.m., you know, right outside the residence. And they state they saw Lindsay in the driveway behind her vehicle uh, greeting these married couples or this married couple. And from the perspective of the witnesses, Lindsay was uh, greeting people that she never met before. They can tell that these were not people that, you know, she is comfortable around with or people she's talked to before. Uh, the body language must have told them that these are fresh people that she's never seen in her life. They also stated that they saw Lindsay lead the people into the home and they did not see any other vehicles present during this encounter. So you're doing a showing, you pull up in the driveway, you have this couple in front of you, you have no idea how they got there, there's no car, uh, that to me is suspicious. Reports state that Jason sent another text message to Lindsay at 5.38 p.m., saying just a couple minutes away. Now, Lindsay did not reply to this text message or open it. Another strange moment happened during Jason's way over to Lindsay's showing. He called his brother Ryan to ask for directions to the address where Lindsay was doing the showing. I find that odd. I don't know why. But if you're sending her a message saying you'll be there in 10 to 15 minutes, I would assume you have an idea of where you're going and what time you're going to be able to get there by. Now, reports say that at 5.41 p.m., Lindsay made an outbound call. A call that police say wasn't intended to reach anybody. This outbound call was a result of Lindsay being brutally murdered, stabbed about 40 times in her chest and around her head and face. At 5.45 p.m., Jason and Cohen arrive at 1702 DeSalsa Place and park pretty much in front of their neighbor's house. When the men first arrive, they say they saw two silhouettes through the OPEC glass front door that is located on this house. This story was their statements for nine years. Nine years, folks. Now, in the Dateline series that was released in 2017, you guys can go look this up. The detectives on this case state Jason saw the man outside the front door when they arrived at the house. He immediately went back inside the house and shut the door. Now, we got two totally different stories here. We have Jason saying nine years ago that they saw two figures you know, through the OPEC glass. And now we have Dateline saying that they saw a guy outside the house nine years later. Suspicious. Now, after driving past a home, uh, Jason parked on the opposite side of the street facing the opposite direction of the house, sitting there for 10 minutes. Now, what I think happened is 
I think Jason knew that there's going to be someone inside this home. I think he knew that his uh, girlfriend at the time was going to be murdered. And I think he purposely parked his car facing the opposite direction so that the witness in the car did not see any strange, strange activity. I think Jason knew that, you know, the timelines of what were supposed to happen. I think this is well planned out. And I think he, um, uh, you know, co coerced his, his buddy in the car into uh, coming along as an alibi. Now, at 5.55 p.m., Jason then relocated his Range Rover to a side street adjacent to 1702 DeSalsa because he didn't want to be that meddling bro boyfriend, quote unquote. That's what he said. Now, here's another theory. You know, you move your car to the side of the house because based off of the timestamp, you knew that these people have probably already exited the home and left. Um, and then you start to sit there for a little bit. Uh, you you gather your story so that it, it looks legit to the police and your friend that's in the car with you can correlate. And then you go to the next step, which I'm going to get to. After being parked for a total of 20 minutes, Jason and Cohen decide to go check on Lindsay. After 20 minutes of not hearing from her, they decided to go check on Lindsay. He looked through the OPEC glass and saw uh, Lindsay's shoes at the front door. He then checked the front door and then he saw that it was locked. So Jason states that he checked the locks, the lockbox at the house and saw that there was no key in it. Well, obviously, because, you know, your girlfriend has a key. He then went to the garage door and saw that there was an electronic keypad on the garage. Jason obviously doesn't know the code, so he calls his mother, Shirley, to see if she can get the code. Shirley said that she would uh, check back with him in a few minutes, and after a couple minutes, she surely called back and said that she couldn't get the coat. Apparently, this is when Jason began to panic and then called the police at about 6 to 5 p.m. He explains that his girlfriend is doing a showing and that he couldn't get inside the house. He then goes on to say that he was going to try to break and enter into the residence. Jason and Cohen then went inside uh, the side of the house where they were parked, and Jason helped lift Cohen over the side patio fence that was located uh, towards the, the uh, I would say, the uh, east side of the house. And he uh, helped Cohen get over into the patio area. Jason states he then went to the front door and waited for Cohen to run, to the, run through the house to, to let him in. When inside the home, Jason states he screamed for Lindsay a few times and immediately ran upstairs directly to the master bedroom where he found Lindsay's dead body on the floor. Jason states he attempted CPR, but he knew that she was already gone when he felt her skin. At 6.11 p.m., 911 received another call from Jason stating that they found Lindsay's body, or he's found Lindsay's body. Law enforcement arrived on the scene and immediately took Jason and Cohen into custody for questioning where they were later released. Now, two things I want to point out. I want to read this line again. Jason states he attempted CPR, but he knew that she was already gone when he felt her skin. Now, I know this guy isn't a doctor, but why are you trying CPR on a person if you already know they're dead? That does not make sense to me. That does not make sense to me. Go to ShedTheLightPodcast.com, and if you have theories on this, please leave your comments. I, I really like to hear back from you guys, but uh, it's a protocol for law enforcement to take whoever is around the dead body or the closest to the dead body or the husband or the wife of someone who was murdered. It's, it's normal for them to be taken into to custody and in question. Uh, there's nothing suspicious about that. What is also suspicious to me is why did he drive this car to the side of the house, relocate it, wait for another 20 minutes, all while knowing 
that his girlfriend is in the house with people who have made her uncomfortable to the point where she needed him to be there. There was zero evidence left behind at this murder scene. This house was completely empty. Police canines were used to canvas the area, but the searches came up empty. This is obvious that the killers got away via getaway vehicle or something like that. Someone was waiting for them. In fact, police found three pieces of wooden patio fence missing from the patio that was attached to the home. This was probably how they escaped to get to the escape vehicle. People, this was no random act of violence. This was not a random attack on this girl. She was stabbed 40 times in her uh, chest area and her face. Lindsay had recently gotten breast augmentation. Most of her stab wounds were in that area in her head. This was personal, folks. Random acts of violence do not consist of this gruesome of, a, of an attack. You know, this is personal. People who have done this, multiple people who have done this, or the people responsible for doing this, knew what they were doing. They carefully planned it. And, and this was per this is a personal vendetta against Lindsay. Let's hear what Lindsay's father has to say about this. Okay. Well, I was informed of Lindsay's murder about 12 hours after it happened uh, by Lindsay's mom, Evelyn, who called me in Calgary where I live. I had, didn't know anything. It was the wee hours of the morning when she called, and I saw her number, and I was sort of stunned because we don't talk that much. And when I answered the phone, I had been sleeping, so I was woke up. It was, let's say, 6 a.m. And uh, she was very distraught and asked me if I'd heard about Lindsay and I go, no, what the hell's going on? And she said she's been murdered. And uh, I immediately went into shock. I couldn't believe it. And she said, didn't the police tell you? And I said, no, nobody's called me. I don't know anything about it. So anyhow, she gave me a rough description and she was just sobbing and upset. So I started crying as well. And um, we talked a little bit, and I just said, you know, I have to go. I don't know how to deal with this. And so after I hung up, I just broke down, and actually I rolled out of bed onto the floor, and I was crying out and swearing what's going on. And, um, anyhow, I was quickly a mess. So... I phoned a friend of mine right away and just said, can you please come over and just wreck my daughter's been murdered? So fortunately, a couple friends showed up and uh, I was still basically on the floor sobbing. So um, luckily, they both took charge of things and uh, one of them because um, they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I need to get to Victoria. So they ended up uh, calling out to a friend of theirs that did bookings at the airport. 
And uh, of course, they wanted to know when, and I just said, I don't know, I can kick it off the floor. So anyhow, as it went on, they booked me for every flight that day. So whenever I was ready, I was on a flight. So I got up finally, and they got some food into me, and off I went to the airport and cried all the way out on the airplane. And uh, then I had another friend pick me up. And uh, so I gathered my composure. So right away, my thoughts were, it was either current boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. And um, my thoughts haven't changed too much to this day. One group or the other, or both of them together, are involved in my daughter's murder in one way or another. That's my parent voice speaking to me. But I do stay open. Uh, funny enough, I phoned um, her current boyfriend, Jason Zalo, on my way in from the airport, and uh, I got a hold of him, and uh, I just said, you know, what the hell's going on? And he just, well, Lindsay's been murdered. And I said, yeah, well, what's, what's happening? He wasn't, didn't appear, didn't sound upset to me, and just said, well, you know, I went over and went into the house, and she was dead. And, uh, so I said, well, who did it? Well, I don't know. I said, well, what, what happened? He said, well, you know, I was there. And so I said, well, were there people around or what? No, no, I was just there by myself. Okay. So then I wasn't getting much out of him. So I said, all right, well, I'll catch up to you later. So I then phoned ex-boyfriend. And uh, he was distraught. He was sobbing on the phone, really upset. And uh, he was just kept crying out, they killed her, they killed her. And I was like, who killed her? And he was like, you know, her boyfriend and that group. So anyhow, uh, we started to talk a bit about it. And I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, um, he was there, her boyfriend was there with his friend, and they found her. And I go, no, no, I was just talking to him. He was there by himself. And he goes, no, no, he was there with his friend. And I said, well, look, I just talked to the guy. He said he was there by himself. He goes, well, he's lying to you. I said, well, hang on, I'll phone you right back. So I called Jason back and said, hey. And he's like, what? And I said, uh, you were there with somebody else. He goes, oh, yeah. And I go, why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me you're there by yourself? He goes, well, I didn't think it was important. I go, well, yeah, I think it's very important. My daughter's just murdered. Like, who the hell were you there with? He goes, oh, it doesn't matter. I go, yeah, it matters who was there. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. So he refused to tell me who he was with. And so basically I cut him off the phone and phoned the other ex-boyfriend back. And, you know, we had a discussion and, so yeah, I proceeded, I went to the police station and then there were concerns about um, my other daughter who was out of the country at the time, so we were trying to figure out how to get her home. So um, that's how it transpired and uh, as soon as I started, I went right to the police station. Of course, as soon as I started dealing with them, it was just not a comfortable feeling right from the start. So 
anyhow, that's basically what went on. And then as time went on, I talked to more and more people. Um, and of course, I was not getting anything out of Jason Zalo. He was uh, he was happy. It was like it was like he was enjoying the notoriety of being involved with the murder. And uh, so that didn't sit well with me. And we finally ended up meeting for dinner. And uh, of course, his mom and his brother showed up because his mom would not stop talking to him, calling him. So I finally told him, like, shut off your phone and just tell her to come here. So she did. And her and I had words, so we left. I left. Uh, she's just not a friendly person. Uh, she always wants to attack and uh, not appropriate. So as time went on, of course, um, you know, the police were more or less adamant, let us do our job. And I was like, okay. So yeah, I was in deep mourning for quite some time. Uh, certainly first year, probably well into the second year. And just too many things started popping up for me. And then finally, um, on the second year, the uh, head of detectives and head of the file, Inspector Rob McCall, who's now retired and works for the Office of the Police Complaint Commission, or he did after he retired, he called me into his office. He's the fellow who's on the Dateline show and uh, explained to me that he had to do a duty to warn and he had two uniformed officers in his office with him to inform me that as a result of uh, their investigations, um, they discovered that my life's in danger and he needed to uh, me to acknowledge I've been informed of that as part of the duty to warn and that the two officers, uniformed officers present were to witness that. So we went through that procedure and then he also had to inform me and get a witness that Sanich police could not provide me with any protection. So I acknowledged that and it was witnessed by the two officers. And then he basically said, you know, have you got any questions? And I go, well, yes, what are you talking about here? There's a hit on me? And he goes, yes. And I said, well, who is it? And he said, well, I can't tell you that due to the Privacy Act. So we had some discussion about that where I said, okay, like bad guys want to kill a good guy. You're the police. You're supposed to stop that, but you won't tell me who it is. He goes, yeah, that's how it works. So I wasn't happy about that, so I left. And uh, funny enough, Sanich police are now denying that that took place. They're saying now that, oh, Inspector McCall says he just had a chat with you that because of what you were doing, um, there was a good chance that your life would be in danger, which is total fabrication and if I may say bullshit yeah it was an official duty to warn which now miraculously has turned into a chat right with two uniformed officers as witnesses let me ask you this so, um yes. so did Shirley Zalo show up to the residence the day of your daughter's murder yes I found that out later um what happened was uh, there was an individual there that said he was standing at the police tape line and uh, he noticed out of his peripheral vision 
somebody walking up the street from about a block, block and a half away. And uh, when they got to the scene, um, they made a big scene about, you know who I am, I'm Shirley Zalo, my son's in there and I have to get in there and make sure everything's okay. You know, my son's there. So that person told me it was re really strange the way that went down and, you know, we're walking up. So I asked Shirley at one point what that was all about and why she was there. And uh, she said uh, Jason had phoned her when he was at the house, at the front door. The door wouldn't open. And uh, and then um, she tried to call him back, and uh, he wouldn't answer his phone. And she said, you know, I sent stress in his voice, so I thought I'd better go over there and see what's going on. Right. And uh, there was a rumor about... Uh, the way she parked at the residence or in the neighborhood. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, she parked uh, about a block, block and a half away from the intersection where the police had blocked off. So when I asked her why she did that, she said, well, I didn't think there'd be any place to park up there. Well, I was... Uh, questioning how she even knew it was blocked off from a block and a half away. Right. Is there anything so, else suspicious about her? Well, certainly, um, I have not seen any evidence of any member of that family attempting to help in any way find out who murdered my daughter. Right. Ex except complain about me. Sure. Anytime I tried to engage them in anything, it was very cold and uh, not helpful. As a matter of fact, one time I wee hours of the morning, I uh, went to a meeting I'd been called to, a bunch of guys were drinking, and uh, they convinced Jason to go over, and I got there, and it was quite evident they were going to harm him, so I pulled him out of there and uh, sent him on his way, and then gave the other guys a lecture, and uh, then uh, later that morning, I called Shirley Zalo to see if she knew what was going on and she said she did and so I said well you might want to tell Jason to make some better decisions because that was potentially life-threatening for him to go to that place and uh, she said to me if I need your advice how to raise my children I'll fucking ask you for it and I said, well, you might want to thank me, lady, because I probably saved his life. And she said, okay, thank you. You expect me to thank you for the rest of my fucking life? Fuck you. And hung up the phone. Wow. So that's the type of person we're dealing with here. Well, that's certainly who I've been dealing with.
We purposely made this podcast as simplistic as possible. We did this to ensure our listeners can consume this information in a chronological order and understand it clearly. This is an unsolved case, and we want to tell this story in pieces so that nothing is missed. Somebody out there knows something, something regarding this case. So please visit our website, ShedTheLightPodcast.com, that's ShedTheLightPodcast.com, and leave any questions, comments, or tips regarding this case there. Our tips will be forwarded to our investigator, who will vet them out and hand all serious tips over to the FBI. None of our tips will go to the Sanic Police Department or any law enforcement agencies in Victoria. We have nothing against those agencies. However, this is a process we will use to protect the integrity of our podcast. Look out for episode two on this case. It should be coming out later on this week or early next week.